Hello, and welcome to this end of August edition of Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and my guest this week is Simon Critchley, who's Professor of Philosophy at the New School in New York. Last year, Simon found himself in Los Angeles, where he wrote the Book of Dead Philosophers. This is a sort of catalogue raisonné of the great philosophers, and a good few minor ones, and the circumstances of their deaths. Though at first glance the book may seem quirky, and even lightweight, there's a great deal going on besides, as you'll shortly hear. When I met Simon in the rather noisy cafe at the ICA in London before his launch event, I began by quoting back to him something Heidegger says in the book. The personality of a philosopher is of interest only to this extent. He was born at such and such a time, he worked, and he died. I suggested to Simon that this was the very antithesis of his view of philosophers' lives. It's written against that that view in, in Heidegger, the idea that a philosopher's biography is, is of no importance and, you know, that the philosophers were... Philosophy can be reduced to a series of systems of thought. And there's an argument that people haven't really picked up on yet in the responses I've had so far, but there's a... I mean, the book is really, you know, an attempt to rewrite the history of philosophy as a history of philosophers. That was the, the ancient model. That was the model that you found in Diogenes Laertius. And that was the way philosophy was, was taught until, let's say, the 18th century. So in many ways, it's a, it's a revival of a rather ancient idea of philosophy being taught through exemplary biography, or the idea of philosophy as a way of life. And the way in which philosophy can become a way of life is through the exemplary lives. And, and, and why is death the particular lens through which you've seen those exemplary lives? Because to philosophize is to learn how to die. And that the exemplary life is the life that is lived without fear of death. And a life that ends with a good death. This is the philosophical ideal or some would say fantasy that really begins it begins before Socrates but Socrates is the the most widely known ancient exemplar of that that the the philosopher is the person who professes death who's half dead himself because of the concerns that he has which are with the contemplative life which is already a sort of resemblance of death in a way but, but more importantly the, the philosopher is the person who can face up to the certainty of death without knowing whether there is annihilation or some sort of continuation and can face up to that with some sort of tranquility. So if philosophy is a, is a way of life, knowing how to die is knowing how to live. That's the idea. Looking at the, the ancient philosophers in the book, it's clear that some of them had the most bizarre deaths in the, the annals of philosophy. Yeah, I mean, the I'm trying to do a couple of things in the book. On the one hand, it's... Um, to defend the, the ideal of the philosophical death in figures like Socrates, Epicurus, and the rest, these, these, these great deaths, Seneca, and these great heroic deaths. On the other hand, I'm trying to poke fun at philosophy and philosophers. And a very good way of doing that is by discovering there's something very risible about the way in which they, they die. And there was an enormous amount of information that no one had really put together. That's what, that's what astonished me in doing this, was how 
the, the fact that no one had done it before and it's such an, an obvious an obvious topic sometimes facts are welded together in unexpected ways but there's nothing made up in the book everything is sourced I didn't have to make things up which is odd because for example Woody Allen did a an article for the New Yorker I think on the the dietary habits of philosophers or in, and it was a completely fictional account and Actually, you know, you could write a much more interesting article just based on what we know about the dietary habits of particularly ancient philosophers, and there's all sorts of things. But, but death is an even more central topic. So the fact that they die humorously is, is, is important. I'm trying to, you know, show that the, um, the ideal of philosophy is also nicely ridiculed by the manner in which many philosophers die. Maybe the dietary habits of the philosophers can be the follow-up book to this oh, one. That's right, the dietary habits, the philosopher's dietary guide. The, that's right, I can see it now. The philosopher's diet, no you, beans, no lentils. <laughs> you, you have interesting things to say about the, the comparison between philosophers' lives and hagiography, the lives of saints. Yes. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about ways in which you see similarities between those two, um, those two phenomena. It's an important theme in the book. It's one that just emerged last year because I happened to be, when I was writing the book in Los Angeles, I was living over, my apartment was over the apartments of a, someone who'd been a former Dominican monk, German Dominican monk who left the, left the Catholic Church because of his sexuality. He put me onto the lives of the early Christian saints. And what I try and show, I don't know whether anyone's done this I think it's original, at least, I think it's original. It's the, if to philosophize is to learn how to die in the ancient world, and that often means committing suicide. But committing suicide, and suicide, there was no prohibition against suicide in the ancient world. In fact, in many cases, it was encouraged. It was courageous. It was dying at the right time in the right way. That changes in the, the, the last great pagan philosopher, Plotinus, is the first place you find arguments against suicide. And that seems to be directly picked up by people like Augustine and in talk, incorporated into, into church doctrine. But the key text here, which is the, the, the life of Anthony, the life of St. Anthony, written by the Bishop Athanasius in the fourth century, I think, or fifth century, I forget the exact date, 384 maybe. And there you see that the, the Christian saint, Anthony, is a Socratic figure. He refuses to make any claims about knowledge, but is wiser than the people that claim to know. He's visited by the pagan philosophers. They ask him uh, riddles and paradoxical questions, and he manages to outwit them. And you can see how the the idea of the the dead pagan philosopher becomes the, the dead Christian saint. So I try and trace that uh, that that shift in in history, but also to show that to, to flip it back that the um, the lives of the philosophers are very close to the lives of the saints. And furthermore, there's a deep need for that, that we, we, we need something like hagiography in relationship to key figures. I mean, I think the success of, for example, Ray Monk's book on Wittgenstein, you know, regardless of, I mean, people that will know nothing about the Tractatus or be able to work out the arguments of the Philosophical investigations can read Ray Monk's biography and realise that this, here was a saintly, here was a saintly figure. So. You, you're quite explicit about comparing Wittgenstein's life to that of a secular saint. You say he showed the same kind of rigor and forbearance and troubled sexuality and yes. an unflinch, unflinching devotion to a cause. Absolutely, and um, 
you know, a, 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 a creature completely at odds with himself and at odds with the world. And also his, you know, his, you know, his, his peculiar courage and readiness for death is remarkable. I mean, he was, um, because the Tractatus was written in the trenches on the Eastern Front in the First World War, at least the first draft of it. And he was, um, he volunteered and was accepted for a frontline unit, but only that he was in, um, he was the lookout, he was in the, he was the, in the observatory post for the for that unit and was was regularly shot at and talks about how thrilled he was at being that close to death so there's something deathly about Wittgenstein and, and yeah as, as a torture and so there's the there's a hagiographic need I think and there are figures like Simone Weil in, in the modern period and then figures like Hannah Arendt that also fulfill that that role and then figures which you know contradict that so the book is the book is often the book is constructed and this wasn't something intended, it was constructed around a series of, of pairings between the, the ideal philosophical death and then its contrary. So uh, Socrates who dies the perfect death and then Diogenes, who's like the Socrates gone mad, described as, who dies by holding his breath and, or dies to eating raw, bad raw octopus or whatever it might be. And then pairings like um, Hobbes and Descartes where, you know, Hobbes doesn't live a life that's nasty, brutish, cruel and short, but lives a long, happy and a loved life. He was, he was greatly, greatly admired and was a very, very happy and played tennis until his late years and uh, had a lover and died at 92, I think. And as Descartes had a short, miserable life. And then pairings right at the end of the book, the book, the last pairing really is uh, Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, because Foucault dies of AIDS in 1984, but it's very much a classical philosophical death. And he's reading Seneca in his, uh, his last months, and he's trying to finish volumes two and three of the history of sexuality, which are all about how one forms oneself as a subject, how philosophy can be a way of life. Whereas Derrida dies, you know, says in his last interview, you know, I remain uneducatable with respect to the wisdom of learning to die, and I refuse to find any consolation in this idea. So he, so there are, there are pairings throughout the book where I... Oh, the other one the other is Seneca. That Seneca is condemned to death by, by Nero. But then Petronius, the great satirist who was Nero's arbiter of taste, stages his death as an anti-Socratic death and slits his wrists, bleeds, but then bandages them up again and then beats his servants and gives some of them presents and drinks a lot and has a nice time. So, so I try and show that the... Sublime and the ridiculous, side by side, back to back. If we're looking, though, for a sort of centre to the book, it seemed to me that the French essayist Michel de Montaigne was as good a candidate as any, and, and perhaps in your own personal pantheon comes close to being exemplary. Montaigne is the hero of the book in... Um, also in terms of its form. I mean, I'm not writing a series of essays like Montaigne, but... One of the things that I'm, as I think about the book now, one of the things that I am against is the idea of philosophy as system. And philosophy as reducible to system. And what I admire in Montaigne is the sort of fragmentary, essayistic quality to his, to his thought. So in many ways I'm you know, mimicking that. But Montaigne is, is crucial in many ways. I mean, the, the essay to philosophize is to learn how to die. This idea that 
for me the key idea, maybe the key idea in the book is that Montaigne says he, he who has learned how to die has unlearned how to be a slave. And that means that slavery consists in denying our mortality. Slavery consists in fear of death. Freedom, by contrast, consists in accepting our mortality, embracing it, having death in my mouth, as, uh, as Montaigne says, the food that I eat, the drink that I imbibe. And therefore, there's this paradoxical claim, which I find very interesting, that the freedom consists in the acceptance of our determination by necessity, by the fact of our, of our mortality. And if we deny that necessity, we enslave ourselves. So that, that's a central thought that runs, runs throughout the book. I mean, Montaigne's, uh, you know, it, it can seem like Montaigne's to philosophize, to learn how to die, is like a piece of sort of bravura in a certain way but he had this extraordinary experience where he was thrown from a horse and and very nearly died but also when he began to recover the memory of the event he was very ill for a very long period of time he began to see himself he remembers himself from outside of himself it's a strange sort of out-of-body experience in in recollection um, so he sees himself as, as dead in a way so so Montaigne is, is a is a hero of the book in terms of with its form and its its philosophical content. Yeah, absolutely. There was a, a really nice phrase you coined about the way we deal with the death the deaths of others, those who are close to us. You say the deaths of others come along and the unstitch are carefully tailored suit of the self. And I wondered what you th- whether you thought philosophers had been particularly bad at the, the conventional cliche I suppose we have is that philosophers exist in their minds and they're probably not very rooted in real life and probably, yeah. probably don't have the same kind of degree of attachments that normal people do. do you, I mean, do you, think, do you think philosophers are perhaps less good at showing us how to cope with the death of others than, than in dealing with the, the prospect of our own deaths? It, it's, a, it's a big question. The idea of the philosophical death in Socrates, I don't say this in the book, but what I think really is that the um, Socrates' death in, in the Phaedo, the last of the, the, the platonic dialogues devoted to his trial and execution, Socrates is an essentially selfish figure. He wants to die in his own way, alone. And he throws out these arguments to his disciples about the immortality of the soul, which are bad arguments. and. They're offered, I think, as consolation to his disciples to stop them feeling sad. But he wants to die in his own way, in the manner of his choosing, the time of his choosing. And there's something very selfish about that idea of the, the philosophical death. And you find that in Socrates, Epicurus, and a whole number of ancient exemplars. The question of mourning and, and grief over the deaths of others only really... I might be wrong about this, but I found more evidence for it in the early Christian writers. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa writes this extraordinary text on the death of his sister, St. Macrina. But the key text is, is, is Augustine, Augustine's Confessions. There are three deaths in the Confessions. Uh, the death of Augustine's friend, his mother and his son. It's the death of the friend and the, the mother which are most important. and. Augustine describes himself as a soul rent into two by the loss of his friend. 
he, he can no longer sustain a belief in continued existence. His, his grief is so extreme. With the death of his mother, he, and that's when he's a pagan, when he becomes a Christian, his mother dies. And she insists that they should not mourn over her because she's going to go to another place, a better place. And so Augustine still mourns, still feels grief, and then feels guilt over the fact that he's mourning her and still realizes that he's not really a good enough, a good enough Christian. The third death, the death of his son, is, is, is noted in half a line and it's not mourned over at all because they've both been baptized and they're going to be all right. So Christianity has this very odd relationship to grief. On the one hand, it's, it's a tradition where there's a strong sense of, the, of living for others and how the deaths of others define us, tear us apart. On the other hand, there is this assurance, at some level, of continuation in an afterlife. So one of the things, I think what I don't do adequately in the book is really track through the question of, of grief. It comes up in Augustine, it comes up in a number of entries. The entry on Emerson, which is Emerson's essay, Experience, where he's talking about the death of his son and how he is untouched in the death of his son. My loss of my son is like a loss of some estate. It leaves me untouched. It's an extraordinarily cruel thing to say. And then finally in Derrida, in Derrida's work, you get this incredibly interesting meditation on mourning. But it's something which for me is a, is a key element of the book. And if I look at it now, I wish I'd done more on that. I'd like to go maybe go back to that. You write in the book about the way in which you wrote it and the fact that you wrote it in LA. And I wondered, yeah. in what way did LA kind of permeate your thinking about death? Because it... You, you portrayed as really rather a good place to, to write a book like this, which was, might be counterintuitive. Yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's an awful place. It's a kind of death, Los Angeles. It really is a kind of death. In, in its denial of death, I mean, it's the most death-denying place I can imagine. At the surface, I mean, what's interesting about Los Angeles as a place is that beneath that, the veneer of sunlight and, and light and the way people will conceal themselves from sunlight with sunglasses and the tinted screens of their cars and the rest there's a sort of um, a very sort of noir side to to Los Angeles which is the interesting part so when I was there I decided the only way I was going to survive this nine months was by dealing with Los Angeles aesthetically so I just threw myself into the history of Hollywood cinema and watched lots of film noir in particular and then you can see another side to Los Angeles Los Angeles is this at one level this you know life-affirming, cosmetic surgery, completely artificial place. On the, other, on the other hand, there is this deathly core to that, which, which pops up, particularly in, in, in movie culture. I suppose it was some sort of strange inspiration, though I can't say I was happy with it. it was, and also it got to me, I mean, writing the book got to me on a few occasions. It was just, because most of the time I was writing it, I was, I was living alone, and I just go home with arms full, arms full of books and then, um, read them and then go and write about where I was writing about the next day. It was a strange thing. And for, for a long period of time, it felt, particularly the ancient world, it felt very distant and, and amusing. You know, I was amazed at how many funny stories I came up, but the closer I got to the, uh, the modern world, the, the more painful it became. And the 17th century was just a nightmare. I just didn't, know, didn't think it was ever gonna, <laughs> gonna end because there's too many philosophers. And, um, you know, and there was just, there was, it felt like a death march at times. It's very peculiar. 
I guess then after, after I wrote it, you know, then there was a feeling, well, what have, I, what have I done? Because obviously the way in which this book is going to be completed is through my own death. That, ha that has to be the uh, conclusion. It's a, it's a very, very queer thing to do. If you were to choose the best philosophical death in the book, which one would it be? I guess Hume, because Hume dies the atheist death. But Hume wasn't, you know, sort of evangelical atheists like Dawkins and Hitchens and these sort of awful evangelical atheists. There was, there was a sort of softness to Hume's atheism. But he was persistent in his doubt and his scepticism. You know, so in many ways, the theme that runs through the book is a theme of, one of the themes that runs through the book is the Epicurean strand of thought, beginning with Epicurus. But the um, Hume, in many ways, is, is the fulfillment of that. Hume dies content without any consolation in the belief in the afterlife. And this is after having to withstand the um, inquiries of Boswell as to whether Hume can truly, Boswell, a Christian, saying, well, can you really die without believing in, in Christ and the afterlife? And do you not even consider, do you not even consider the afterlife as a possibility? And Hume says, it is possible that if I throw a piece of coal on the fire, it will not burn. But, you know, and then he publishes the essay, there's two essays on the immortality of the soul, which is against, on suicide, which he's in favor of in, in certain circumstances, which come out afterwards. And Adam Smith says of him in a correspondence with his uh, doctor that he was near the closest to the ideal of the human being that he could imagine. So Hume is a difficult one to beat. But then again, the pairing with Hume, there's always a flip side. There's always an undertow, is, is Rousseau, uh, who, who for me is a much more interesting philosophical figure than, than Hume. I mean, Hume writes a 10-page autobiographical essay which says, you know, it is not, it is not good for a man to speak too long of himself. And Rousseau writes three autobiographies, the second of which he tries to leave on the altar of Notre Dame and give away to people in the street. And the third one, which is the reveries of a solitary walk, which is the most beautiful, where he describes his, his grappling with death, which, of course, being Rousseau, is incredibly tortured. And it's only when he's hit by a great Dane, hit by the huge dog, on the streets of Paris on one of his walks, that he's, he loses consciousness. And when he regains consciousness, he's conscious of the, the blood coming out of his mouth, his teeth being smashed up, he's terribly banged up. And his first thought was a feeling of, of, of complete happiness because he'd attained a feeling of existence as such without any reflexivity, without any sort of self-torture. He might have died two years later from the effects of that collision with the dog. So Hume dies the perfect philosophical death, and Rousseau is its obverse, and I find myself torn between the two. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to say that I believe in the idea of the philosophical death and that it's simply attainable, because the fear of death is something that you know, is very difficult to assuage, you know, very difficult to deal with. I think the book helps. It provides a sort of vocabulary, a series of examples, but it doesn't remove that fear. And it warns you to stay away from Great Danes. And it warns you to stay at all costs, stay away from, stay away from large dogs on the streets of Paris. Simon Critchley, thank you very much. Thank you very much, George. It's a pleasure. I was talking to Simon Critchley about the Book of Dead Philosophers, 
which is available now from Grantabooks in the UK and Melbourne University Press in Australia. In the United States, it's forthcoming from Vintage. Many thanks for listening to this edition of Podularity, and until next time, goodbye.